Welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 158, and it's 2nd of May, 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Spent preparing these notes. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is a very intense, note-heavy episode. Because we're going to be discussing the prequel fandom... Which will be really fun. I'm really excited about all the points we have to discuss. It's a very big topic and we've had some wonderful contributions from our listeners. So really excited to get to all that. But yeah, it's the hardest I've worked on a set of notes in a long time. So yeah, I didn't have space in my life for more Star Wars after that. Mm. But yeah, I know you did. You actually consumed Star Wars as meant to be consumed and watched a movie, didn't you, Kirsty? <laughs> I was going to say, thank you for doing all that work, Rachel. I just <laughs> sat and watched Attack of the Clones. <laughs> no don't worry it's fine like i'm totally happy with that i'm like a little nerd i love the research really even when i complain about it so yeah what was it like to revisit attack of the clones it was quite interesting actually because this is the first time i've watched it since the mandalorian season two with like boba's return and everything Mm -hmm. and do you remember when that episode came out when he returns and they have that big seismic charge from his ship and everyone went crazy about that (laughs) i didn't even remember that sound (laughs) i was like what yeah that's the sort of thing that doesn't register at all with me either i'm kind of like what are people talking about it makes me feel like i'm not really a fan but watching it this time i paid attention i was like oh (laughs) okay i'm actually gonna pay attention to obi-wan's side of the story and i did enjoy it more than i have in the past oh good i'm glad yeah, I love Dex's diner and all that silliness and, the, you know, chasing bounty hunters through clubs and... Nice. Yeah, it's just a lot of fun. Death sticks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Makes me want to go home and rethink my life. I was enjoying Obi-Wan's dry sass. He is just so tired. <laughs> I'm going yeah, to get no, a Yeah, no, Ewan really brings a special kind of magic to that role. It's very entertaining. Yeah, it's just such a lovely contrast to like Anakin's earnest, angst, heartache, (laughs) horniness. I know there's like a little bit of banter with Anakin and Obi-Wan, so it's not like Anakin's completely humorless, but he is pretty humorless overall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's also good um, prep for the Bad Batch, isn't it? Because of all the cloning stuff, and they're obviously going to be returning to that in a big way with the Bad Batch in a few days for May the 4th. So that's very exciting. That was totally unintentional on my part, but and I finished watching and then I went on Twitter and saw people freaking out about Bad Batch again. I was like, oh, right, May 4th. It's already <laughs> May. So yeah, we're going to have new Star Wars in a couple of days. Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to checking it out and yeah, actually watching a Star Wars animated thing again. So that'll be really fun. So I haven't watched any Star Wars animation since Resistance, my beloved Resistance. So yeah, it'll be nice to get into a new show. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So there really hasn't been any huge news, so we're just not going to do a news section this time. And instead, we're going to go straight into our main topic, which is a deep dive discussion of prequel fandom, specifically online prequel fandom, because that's obviously what we have the most records for and documentation of. And yeah, the theme here is going to be everything changes, but also nothing changes. Um, so yeah, to start that out, we actually have a little game, um, and hopefully Kirsty hasn't looked at the answers. I haven't, and I honestly, I look, I was looking through the notes last night, I was like, I don't know if I can answer these. Yes! And that's the exact <laughs> point! 
Like, honestly, this isn't about shame, Kirsty. The whole point is that these are almost like <laughs> indistinguishable from each other. There might be some hints. We'll see. But yeah, people's concerns about the sanctity and authenticity of Star Wars maybe hasn't changed too much over the years. Exactly. Yeah, because just to really lay it out for people, the point of these quotes, which are real reactions from fans, and some of them I took from a book called Using the Force by Will Brooker, and some of them I took from the Saltier Than Crate subreddit, so thank you to that subreddit. The point here is just to show that fans' responses to Star Wars films, it has a very particular tone to it. And the same talking points crop up again and again, even when they're referring to different films, which I personally find really fascinating. Okay, so without much further ado, I do quote one. And Kirsty, for you, you need to say whether this is a quote about the prequel era or the sequel era. Quote one. I don't feel betrayed so much as let down by X. It lacks so many of the key factors that made Star Wars so affecting. It isn't just the historical, social context. It is as if Blank thought that what made the original films great was simply the spectacle. What lay at the heart of the first films was a very human story. They had an innocence, a willful naivety, and a concern for the characters and their motivations. Blank years down the line, and Blank clearly believes it was the fireworks that lined their bulging pockets. Or maybe they just don't give a shit. I believe the latter is more likely, which is why it does feel like something of a slight. They do not make blank for themselves. They made it for an assumed consumer ideal. So which is that, Kirsty? Oh my god, I feel like that could be Eva. Because it's, it's, it's salty, but it's, it's vague, you know. Mm. Uh, hmm. Just the way certain things are phrased, I'm going to guess prequels. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> you got it right. Well done. Because the, the, the way they're talking about like, oh, he thought this and then he thought this. I'm like, is this salting at Lucas in particular or Lucasfilm yep. as opposed to like Disney Star Wars? Yeah. It's very much about salting at George Lucas in particular. Okay. So yeah, very well observed. Right. Okay. Mm. So then quote two, prequel era or sequel era. When I saw blank, the whole thing felt wrong to me like nails on a chalkboard. This is because the whole thing felt sickeningly uninspired. There's the fact that they were simply ripping off the aesthetics and structure of A New Hope, of course, but there was also the fact that it didn't actually introduce any new ideas. Okay, well, that's got to be sequel, because that's the classic criticism of The Force Awakens. Ding, 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 (laughs) ding. I feel like that's one of the easier ones. Because, yeah, like, that is just the most common, like, played out, like, criticism of TFA that there is, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, people have a lot to say about the prequels, but it not introducing any new ideas, that's not one I hear, because the prequels definitely had a lot of new ideas. Yeah, exactly. That is not a problem of those films. (laughs) Okay. So, quote three, prequel era or sequel era? Since they are in charge of it all, it honestly feels like it is all on their shoulders. A literal multi-million dollar waste of time, money, and amazing characters that amounts to more questions than answers. Characters no one gives a shit about. And the (laughs) ruination of those we do care about. I love that word, ruination. Isn't that great? I genuinely feel like every single fan base is pissed. (laughs) Only kids seem to enjoy these movies. And I suppose that's what they wanted. Kids. So they get their parents to buy the shitty little toys and make blank even more money. Oh, man. 
Oh. Uh, this is sequels too, I think. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> but it's amazing, like, when you compare the criticism, like, you know, the sort of language that's being used in that quote to the first quote, you know, where it's about George Lucas lining his bulging pockets. And then in this one, it's all about the consumerism and making Disney even more money. You know, it's exactly mm. the same. And yeah, it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. I just, yeah. I think it's funny to resent the fact that the movies are made for kids and that kids like them. <laughs> <laughs> I know these like serious adult dramas about space and wars happening in space. And that that part as well about ruining the characters that we do care about. I feel mm. like some people do feel a bit shortchanged by what happened to Luke, Han and Leia in, in these movies. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent, they definitely do. And yeah, I think that's one of the main giveaways in that quote is about the sequels because obviously they weren't using, apart from like Anakin and Obi-Wan, who obviously appeared as the older men, it was pretty much all new characters. Hmm. There wasn't lots of room for them to be ruined, essentially. (laughs) Um, Okay, so quote four, final one, prequel era or sequel era. The people like me who have expressed their concerns about Star Wars did so because we love it, we'll always love it. There was a special spirit with the first films that captured our imaginations, and we have developed a sense of ownership in protecting that spirit. You'll see countless discussions in the old forum discussion files of George's vision versus what everyone else thinks. But basically, we felt that some of the cornerstones of the original mythology were cracked by some of the additions of blank. I think this is prequels. Correct. Well done. Sorry, oh, I, I get... forgot to do the ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Most important thing, but yeah, well done. That's four for four, Kirsty. So you shouldn't. I'm having an easier time than I thought I would. Yeah, I just feel like some of the criticism sometimes, like criticizing the additions of things. I think with prequels in general, not even just the Star Wars prequels, some people have a problem with like, and I guess I do too. If I don't feel like it's done very well, just the need to kind of go back and fill in the blanks, like, oh, what were the Clone Wars about? You know. Yeah. Uh, what was Anakin like as a child? Um, yeah, if you if you don't feel on board with how that story plays out, that's going to be probably one of your criticisms. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I just wanted to start the discussion in that way because it highlights exactly what Kirsty just observed, which is that there are obviously different types of criticisms against like the prequels versus the sequels. But there is also this consistent tone across the like dialogue that surrounds those films. You know, there's this like feeling of betrayal that's expressed, the cynicism towards the people in control of the storytelling. Like I just find that so interesting because they're such different films made in such different times. But I guess it really communicates something about the originals and the place that those films have for people that you get these really like intensely passionate responses to films that try to add to the mythology in some way. So yeah, it's just really interesting. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're never going to capture the specific magic of the originals again, because it's almost, it's not even about those films necessarily. It's been kind of mythologized and just so baked up with nostalgia since then that it's taken on a life of its own really hasn't it and again this is not to say that like we don't criticize star wars films obviously we do we have our favorites and we have the ones that we're really not so keen on so it's not like we're above all this but it is interesting to kind of step back and and see the patterns 
and why people are kind of unhappy with certain ones over others. Definitely. Okay, cool. Could you read out the email that we have from Maury, Kirsty, that just provides a bit of context to like fandom in the late 90s, like in the build-up to The Phantom Menace, essentially? Okay. I think word of Lucas making the prequel trilogy hit by the time I was in college or just before. My family, mother, brother and I, were pretty hyped. My mother saw all the original trilogy in theatres, and my first theatre memory was Return of the Jedi in 1983. So aside from my father, who didn't care for Star Wars, it was a family affair. Since I was in college, I had access to the internet, and Ain't It Cool News was the site I regularly accessed for Star Wars content. I don't really remember too many message boards. As soon as the books, both visual novels and screenplay with photos came out at our local bookstore, we got them. It was Books A Million, and they had a massive display. It's important to note that back then, nobody cared about movies being spoiled. It was commonplace for novelizations to come out before the movie. If you didn't want to know the ending, you just didn't buy the books, obviously. I loved reading the story, and Darth Maul intrigued me the most. So yeah, we knew the story before watching the movie. Yeah, and this is one of the key differences between prequel era fandom and sequel trilogy fandom. Yeah, I honestly can't imagine that at this point. People are spoiler obsessed. (laughs) Yeah, I think understandably now, especially in relation to something that's really special to them like Star Wars, they do not want to be spoiled going into the movie. For the most part, there are obviously other people like us who like hound out all the spoilers and want to read them. But I think there was just a much more casual attitude towards it in the late 90s, where, yeah, it was just out there. And like anyone who was interested could literally go out and buy the novelization in their local bookshop and find out what happened in the film that way, if they were so inclined. Whereas now you do obviously get spoilers but they're all like contraband almost you know you're not meant to have them but they are there um for the people who know where to look essentially there was also a massive spoiler culture surrounding the prequels and that's beyond the scope of this discussion basically but i have the impression from my research which didn't go very deep into this But my understanding is that basically every single prequel film was very exhaustively spoiled well before it came out in cinemas. Like to the the point of scripts like floating around online, you know, and exchanging hands. That's how far it went. So yeah, a very different time. And yeah, of course, the other main point to make here is that we're obviously talking about prequel films. So to a large extent, a lot of the story was predetermined. Like people knew that this was going to be a series of films that were about the events that led to Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader and they knew that certain things referenced in the originals and some of the novelizations were going to happen in these films so it's not like the sequel trilogy where it was wide open basically right so just to underline that I found a news group discussion from 1996 because yes you can go back to 1996 by searching the right places online it's pretty wild (laughs) Um, And yeah, could you just read that out, Kirsty? It just demonstrates my point, I think. I see the first film as introducing all the major characters and then accomplishing three goals. One, Ben and the Jedi defeat some foe. Two, Anakin shows ability and meets his queen. Three, Palpatine gains power. I think two and three are pretty safe bets, but one is pure speculation. I think that there will need to be some intense action in the first film, and having the Jedi defeat some foe would accomplish this and introduce Ben and Yoda in the process. I've heard rumours stating that the Clone Wars will be dealt with in the prequels, and also rumours claiming they will not be involved with the films. 
a Clone Wars subplot would provide a great way to inject action into the first film. Guess we'll have to wait and see, but it's still fun to speculate in the meantime. Well, that was pretty on the money. I know, right? It's very impressive. <laughs> in 1996, wow. Yeah, it's incredible. So I think that's before George Lucas had even finished the script. <laughs> <laughs> just laying out the synopsis of a Phantom Yes, yeah, exactly. It's pretty remarkable. And yes, it would have been impossible to do this with The Force Awakens, essentially. You know, because it was just way too wide open. Like with that film, people obviously knew it was going to happen a few decades after Return of the Jedi. But beyond that, the identities of the protagonists, how the old characters were going to play into things, like it could have just, it could have literally been anything. So yeah, like it was much more closely defined um, for the prequels. And yeah, in a way I found that looking through all that old speculation, it made it less interesting to read because the predictions were much less wild than they were for the sequels, basically. It makes it all the more interesting that there was such a divisive reaction if people were Mm. able to pretty much, yeah, that's what the first film will be about, and they were right. I mean, I don't know if this was like a general perception, but it's, it's pretty in keeping with what we got, and yet there was such an intense reaction to The Phantom Menace. Yeah, very much so. Like, I guess people would highlight the fact that it wasn't necessarily the story being bad or anything. It was about the execution. Hmm. Um, And, yeah, like the... Yeah, like the way in which certain characters were used and stuff. Like, the decision to have a child Anakin and stuff. Like, that was a very, very controversial choice. And again, unfortunately, that's something I just didn't have the space to go into here. Um, But... Yeah, that could be a whole topic for another time because people had a lot of opinions on the choice to make Anakin a child. I personally think that was a good and interesting choice, but you can understand the other side as well, I think. Me too. I would not give up Jake Jake Lloyd's performance there. I think it's adorable. Yeah. No, he was really sweet. Um, Okay, cool. So we have an email correspondent next. Um, So this is from Allronix. Um, Could you read out the first paragraph, which just sets up the nature of fandom, specifically like her experience of being a woman in fandom? So I think it's really interesting. Okay. A little backstory. I'm a fanfic writer and have been in organised fandom since the early 1990s. The whole idea that fandom was some exclusive boys club resembling Big Bang Theory until girls came in sometimes around 2010? It's bullshit. Women were there since day one. We were running the fan cons, making the zines, running the tape exchanges, and a lot of the stuff we did have to fly under radar because it wasn't authorised. So we'd let our brothers, who were into more studio-approved activities, be the public face while we sneaked the crazy shit through the back door. Women in fandom, including myself, were often gender non-conforming, had some kind of neurodivergence, were physically disabled, something that made us not welcome among the cool girls. The dudes playing Dungeons and Dragons at lunch were often a hell of a lot more welcoming than the other girls in high school. Yeah, so the email goes on, but I just wanted to pause there quickly because I felt this was such a good point and I just briefly wanted to acknowledge that because, yeah, with this discussion, the last thing we want to do is speak for anyone or make proclamations about what being in fandom for the prequels was like for any person or any group of people. Because first of all, Kirsty and I were not in fandom at the time, you know, especially not online fandom, which is its own world, essentially. Um, and 
obviously experiences in fandom, as both of us know from being in sequel trilogy fandom, are incredibly diverse. And there's positive experiences, negative experiences, and everywhere in between, (laughs) essentially. So yeah, we are going to try our absolute best to be nuanced, essentially, with our discussion and the aspects of the fandom that we cover, um, while obviously still trying to have a narrow enough focus to have a more manageable discussion, I guess, because yeah, the diversity of people's experiences also means it's impossible to cover everything in a single podcast episode. Yeah, and you know, I wasn't involved in organised fandom back then, just because I didn't really, I mean, we'd probably just got the internet going into Phantom Menace, I wasn't really aware of how all that stuff worked. Yeah, But I do remember what it was like to be in school and being into something that was considered nerdy. And I think these days it might be a little easier to be out there with your fandom. Um, because there's just been this like huge proliferation and popularization of things. I mean, you know, just looking at the MCU, right? These things are hugely popular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, back then it, it, you weren't considered one of the cool popular girls if you were into that stuff and you were open about it. So I, I definitely remember what that felt like. Yeah. No, I can empathize with it as well. But yeah, it's just a really good point and definitely something that i want us to keep in mind as we continue with our discussion so thank you very much for raising that okay cool so could you finish off reading the email which just goes a bit more into the types of topics that were on fans minds in the lead up to phantom menace mm. i remember a lot of talk about the casting there was a lot of dude did you hear they got liam neeson and samuel l jackson on this about how this was or wasn't going to mesh with expanded universe stuff like the darth bane rule of two what we knew of Obi-Wan's background, any shout-outs to the backstory of other characters. There were early and unused ideas like the Lars being Obi-Wan's birth family and not Anakin's stepfamily. There was a lot of, who is this Qui-Gon dude anyway? And we all wanted to know about Darth Maul. This was the first on-screen Zabrak, a species who had been in comics and such for years, and a double-sided lightsaber. Oh, this was going to be good. See, I didn't even know that Darth Maul's species had been seen previously before The Phantom Menace. Actually, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. So people already were familiar with with that look. Yeah, 100%. And again, something I haven't gone into in depth, again, for space reasons, I feel like I'm just saying that over and over, really is the fact that you can't underestimate the impact that the expanded universe had on people's frame of mind when they were going into Phantom Menace. Because those books were still considered canon on some level around that time like they weren't like George Lucas level canon because they were obviously books and comics being written by other writers but they hadn't necessarily been refuted and some of the ideas from them actually were incorporated into the prequels like these stories and characters from those books and comics fed into fan spec a lot so yeah that's a recurring theme that shows up mm. So really, you could have like a detailed discussion about any single character and the speculation and how people were talking about that character in the run-up to the film coming out. But I decided to focus particularly on Padme um, because, I, well, I like Padme, <laughs> so bias. <laughs> um, but also, I feel like after the film came out, a really interesting type of fandom sprung up around Padme and her handmaidens in particular so yeah i thought we'd go back a bit further with the padme stuff so then we can get to the really interesting stuff with what the fandom about padme looked like 
Just as a quick refresher, we need to remind ourselves about what people knew about Luke and Leia's mother in the build-up to the prequels. So obviously you have dialogue from Return of the Jedi. Leia's saying, she was very beautiful, kind, but sad. Then in the novelization, you have Obi-Wan speaking to Luke on Dagobah. He said, when your father left, he didn't know that your mother was pregnant. Your mother and I knew he would find out eventually, but we wanted to keep you both as safe as possible. So I took you to live with my brother Owen on Tatooine, and your mother took Leia to live as the daughter of Senator Organa on Alderaan. So I think on a very fundamental level that indicated to fans that Padme was alive, like when Anakin became Vader, essentially. And there's lots and lots of funny exchanges on the forums of people insisting that there's no way Padme could die by the end of the prequels. (laughs) because of these references essentially in things like the novelization and and even in the film you know with Leia clearly remembering her mother which typically a newborn infant would not do but what do I know so (laughs) but she has the force that's always been my kind of explaining away of it yeah I think that's the best way logic to use but yeah like people definitely weren't thinking along those lines at the time they were taking it at face value I think understandably yeah it's just interesting how that like played such a powerful role in people's perceptions of that whole storyline. Okay, so then in terms of people knowing who Natalie Portman was going to be playing and who the character of Amadala actually was going to be, you know, her function in the trilogy, it was known very early um, because on 9th of April 1997, we had a report from Variety. Um, so could you just quickly read out that report, Kirsty? She doesn't look much like Carrie Fisher, but 16-year-old Natalie Portman is in discussions to co-star as Princess Leia's mother at a younger age in the vaunted first Star Wars prequel. So this answers a question that I had last time we recorded, because I didn't know if people were, like, fully aware that Padme was going to be their mum. Yep, exactly. And it was very much out in the open. I don't think necessarily that every single fan would have realised that ahead of time, because, like, most people wouldn't have been reading variety online yeah as a trade right at the time yeah as a trade and i'm not sure what the online presence of variety was like in the like mid to late 90s but i doubt it was what it is now you know every single article is published online and because of that you know more like paper oriented culture it would have been very easy for people to miss this sort of information so again you do find people on the news groups and the forums from like the late 90s speculating about who Amadala could be for a few posts and then someone comes along and says oh yeah she's confirmed to be the mum <laughs> and then it's all put to bed so yeah then there was also an interesting page I found on the Forcenet which was basically some rumours that there were about Natalie Portman's character and what the role was going to look like and what Naboo was going to be like but yeah could you read out the spoiler report from 1997 Kirsty? Naboo is some sort of planet symbol of the Old Republic. It has minimal political power, but it is ruled by the most ancient and noble house, the one that saw the beginning of the Republic. The last descendant of this noble house is precisely the young queen. She was called Thena, so we'll take this name for good. First question, will Thena be the mother of Luke and Leia? Quite possible. Natalie Portman is 16 to 17 years old, but someone on the set said she wore clothes and makeup to make her look a lot younger. She manages to reach about 10 to 11 years, and the age matches with that of young Anakin. Thena rules the planet with the aid of some sort of matriarchal council, 
a number of middle-aged women dressed in tunics much like Mon Mothma. At her core, a volley of alien ambassadors, nobles and representatives from all the galaxy. The royal guards of Thena are dressed in red robes, very similar to the Emperor's royal guards and Jedi. Daylight always shines, don't ask me why or how. Runes, dragons and symbols of old are everywhere, and peace and prosperity reign unchallenged. Luckily for us, this peace is interrupted by the assaults of the Nemoidians. Who or what are the Nemoidians? Nothing here, except that they are caught in a long-standing war with Naboo and that they are aliens, very tall and very thin. They conduct the assault on the royal palace of Naboo using war droids capable of shape-changing their structure, a little similar to IG-88 in the likeness. Some people who managed to glimpse at the scenes also mentioned something about a scene in the palace in which Thena and the ambassadors suddenly draw their weapons and declare to the Nemordians, you have lost, which might be the resolution of the Naboo-Nemordian conflict. Anyway, from what I gathered, it would seem that the aforementioned council, tired of suffering the assault, suggests Thena to ask for the Jedi Knight's help, and here's how she is drawn into the events of the trilogy. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yes, I half right. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. So hearing you read it out loud again, I feel like it's definitely based on something true. You know, I reckon someone definitely had seen like filming or seen script pages or something, especially because that second half talking about the Namidians and, you know, the like droids looking like IG-88, which you could see someone describing the battle droids from the prequels like that, you know, if that was a completely new concept to them. So yeah, like I definitely think it's based on something true, but there's also a lot of stuff that wasn't true. And I really wish that they had kept a matriarchal council. And that's very <laughs> sad. I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about those ideas, Kirsty? I-, I do like them. And I like the parallel with the... Uh, they're pointing out that the red robes parallel. I do think it's... I, it's one of my favourite things. I know this is a silly thing to point out, but I just kind of like when there's like spoiler and leak culture, like the misspellings of people's names and like the <laughs> alien names. Yes. That's just one of my favourite things because it's like so close, but yeah, so far. Okay, cool. So I've got another email from Cree um, and this one is about essentially moving from real world fandom into online fandom and just to move us along it also like touches on the reaction to The Phantom Menace um, which yeah, is an interesting like segue because yeah the reaction to that film it was very very contentious and ugly in lots of ways we're not going to go into the full scope of that ugliness essentially because it's just tiresome and repetitive and we don't need enough discussion on that but yeah just to provide a bit of context to what the experience of star wars fandoms like after the film came out i'll read this out hi rachel and kirsty i'm a huge fan of your podcast I'd like to share my experiences of being active in online fandom during the prequel era. I got into Star Wars in 1994 when I was 10. It started when I rented the Super Nintendo Empire Strikes Back game, which I would later buy on my birthday, complete with free strategy guide. And I followed that up by watching the movies on cable and eventually buying the VHS tapes in 1995. The VHS tapes had an interview with George Lucas where he talked about starting work on the prequels. I could not believe there was going to be more of these movies soon. It was a great time to become a fan because I didn't have to deal with the dearth of content that older fans had to deal with. Soon the action figures would make a comeback with the power of the force and the special editions of the original trilogy would be released, allowing me to experience the saga in theatres for the first time. I kept up to date with news by subscribing to Star Wars Insider, Wizard and Toy Fair magazines. 
I watched the episode 1 trailer, still one of the best trailers of all time, for the first time late at night on Entertainment Tonight and taped it so I could watch it over and over again. But once my family joined AOL in 1999, my world of fandom expanded. The very first thing I did when I got online in February of 1999 was search for Star Wars news and forums. I came across a site called Sir Steve's Guide that had photos of all the upcoming episode 1 figures. I printed all the photos so I could look over them more closely. I got onto StarWars.com and watched the Lynn Diaries showing behind the scenes on the new movie. And soon after I came across a site called The ForceNet that hosted the Jedi Council forums. I joined at just the right time because the second trailer for The Phantom Menace was about to debut. My posts were really cringe. I was 15, newly online, and English was my second language. I didn't even know you weren't supposed to type in all caps. And I went through several usernames before I settled on the one I'd be using for years to come. By the time The Phantom Menace premiered in Puerto Rico a week after the US, I'd already been spoiled about a few things from posts on the forums, but that didn't take away from the euphoric experience of seeing a new Star Wars movie on the big screen. I loved it. My brothers loved it, although my youngest brother hated Darth Maul for killing Qui-Gon, and even my parents loved it. We went to Pizza Hut in Toys R Us after the movie, and just basked in the excitement of new Star Wars. Imagine my dismay when I got online and saw how angry people were after the movie. Lucas ruined my childhood, Jar Jar sucks, and Mannequin Skywalker, I've not heard that last one, were among the comments. Did they see the same movie? When I talked about how much I enjoyed it and how much my brother loved Jar Jar, I was called an apologist, or worse. I moved away from the movie discussions due to the negativity, and posted mostly on the collecting and fanfiction sections. I only made one attempt at fanfic myself, and it's so embarrassing and long since deleted that I'll not mention it here, but I enjoyed reading others' works. Yeah, so Cree's email continues, but I've spread it out, essentially, according to where it best fits the discussion. So yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting personal experience of being in fandom at that time. And yeah, especially like entering that brave new world of the internet. And yeah, I just feel so bad for Cree, you know, like having all that excitement and enthusiasm and just having it completely dampened by seeing all this massive backlash online. It must have really sucked. Yeah, it's hearing about experiences like that that make me almost thankful that I wasn't aware of how all of that worked. Um, yeah. just kind of enjoying it in your little bubble of family and friends oh, yeah like her comment about not knowing uh, what, that you should not type in all caps that <laughs> reminds me of how much like it takes a while to kind of learn internet etiquette right like even if you are a native English language speaker it's yeah, yeah stuff like that that you just take for granted these days but it was like entering a whole other world and and talking to strangers about this movie and then realizing that they felt very differently about it. Actually, th- saying that out loud, that does make me feel like that's sort of similar to my experiences <laughs> after The Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah, obviously I was older than she was at the time, but like going on to theforce.net to talk about The Force Awakens and then realizing that a lot of people didn't like it, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it underlines the separation between like, real world experiences of watching these movies and then the online experience of like being in the fandom for that movie you know because in the real world most people they just have like very like casual opinions about things you know there's not this deep investment so 
you obviously had these like strong positive feelings about the force awakens and you went online trying to see what other people were saying about the force awakens because you wanted to express that and then obviously you saw like a lot of negativity and a lot of people refuting your reading of the film and yeah like i think it hits you like a ton of bricks sometimes when you have that like journey in fandom because yeah you assume that if you're going into a fandom space people are going to be positive about that thing you know otherwise why put all this effort into talking about it online you know unless it's something that brings you joy somehow (laughs) why indeed (laughs) yeah well that is the question isn't it (laughs) i think that was honestly my impression i was like well yeah no one cares about it in real life that much um but people online will have lots of positive things to say and to be fair they did you know there was a huge amount of of love for the force awakens and there still is and it kind of gave birth to sequel trilogy fandom but yeah if i think about that in terms of what that must have felt like for the phantom menace where like most of the characters aside from old ben i guess were brand new yeah that must have been a bit bit strange yeah and i feel like it must have been especially heightened because for most of the people engaging with online fandom i think the internet only really became very widespread you know in people's homes starting around the late 90s so it's not like people like knew what online fandom was like you know to any extent i think before the phantom menace era so that film would have taken a lot of people online for the first time to discuss the thing they were passionate about and yeah it must have just been a massive shock to the system in so many ways Mm. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, cool. I'm sure your posts weren't that cringe, Cree. Or if they are, we're all cringe and whatever. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. Just like own that like naive, childish enthusiasm. I would because yeah, you're 15. <laughs> you're allowed to be cringe when you're 15. So yeah, don't feel bad. And I'm sure the fanfic was great too. Yes. No. 100. percent Like I do sometimes like want to go back to those old fanfic boards on the Forcenet and just read something from like. 1998 or something what the hell just read whatever people are writing okay cool then we have another email i'm just describing what online fandom and subgroups were like at the time from trixie so could you read out trixie's email please Kirsty? one thing to know is that in my experience fandom as a concept was a lot less connected and intimate connected than it is now my experience was primarily on various bulletin boards and individual websites and later live journal, although not that much. People kind of kept to themselves and liked what they liked, and that was true of sub-fandom groups as well. For example, after The Phantom Menace came out, there was an immediate, fervent, passionate group of folks who founded the Darth Maul Estrogen Brigade, which was kind of like its own little room off of the main lobby of fandom where people could say, hey, he's quite hot, isn't he? Without people coming in and saying they were problematic or whatever. Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> Okay, so subgroups in fandom. There was Star Wars Chicks, which was just like a group of women and girls encouraging each other, and they did some fundraising, I believe, for breast cancer research. There was a great fix site called Sith Academy, which I think is also still online, and you should absolutely check it out. It firmed up a very specific set of headcanons about the characters in The Phantom Menace, specifically about how Obi-Wan and Darth Maul were dating, Qui-Gon was a huge stoner, and there were in-universe and AU fix where they did all sorts of crazy things. There was one story in particular about Darth Maul wearing a kiss the cook's ass apron that I'm going to have to find and reread. <laughs> please, if you find that, send us the link, Trixie, please. That would yeah, please. bring me great joy. It was a very interesting time. 
less hostile in some significant ways in the sequel era, but also more hostile in others. There wasn't the sense of purity gatekeeping by some segments of Yonder fandom, if that's the right way to put it, at least not what I saw, but I wouldn't go so far as to say it was some golden era. It definitely had problems, and I rate fans who imagine that they would get three very different movies from what they got. It's been interesting to see the backlash against George Lucas circle back around by those guys going, George would never have made the sequel movies. Come save us. (laughs) (laughs) It's like poetry, it rhymes. Yeah, no, the parallels. Um, I just quickly want to mention before we talk about it properly, um, I just quickly typed in the Darth Maul estrogen brigade because this is something I didn't have as much time to research as I wanted to. I found the Darth Maul estrogen brigade 2, very important the 2, is still online, which I love because that's not always the case. And they just have a very simple like, mission statement at the top saying, we are a group of Star Wars fans, female for the most part, with a fascination for that mysterious Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Maul. We don't understand it either. We simply accept. And I think that's beautiful. So good for I them. think I might have seen that before because I think there's an article out there that I've seen a few times, maybe on Tumblr, about um, prequel era fandom and like Darth Maul becoming this huge... Um, sex not symbol. love interest, but yeah, sex symbol. Yes. And, and it seemed to be quite a surprise for the journalist who was writing it. Yeah. No, 100%. Like, the book I mentioned earlier, Using the Force by Will Brooker, there's quite a bit in that about the Darth Maul fandom, you know, and the attraction that he had for lots of fans. Um, And there's, like, a transcript of the most cringy interview between, like, the author and some woman, like, talking about Darth Maul. And he's just not getting it, even when it's, like, spelled out plain as day what the attraction of a character like this is. He's hot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just beyond his comprehension. And, oh, yeah. It's very frustrating <laughs> to read. Um, and because I wanted to save everyone from the frustration, I did not include that in the notes. <laughs> it's just so funny because so much of the time that seems to come down to, but I don't find him attractive. So I don't exactly. understand how anyone else could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's almost like attraction could be subjective. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's very funny. Trixie makes some really great points there. And particularly interesting to me was that final one about people like usually keeping to their own spaces. You know, it's like obviously the Darth Maul Estrogen Brigade had their own websites and forums and everything. And yeah, like the um, Star Wars Chicks was his own space and so on and so forth. The impression seems to be that these smaller spaces that fans carved out for themselves where they were very aware that their interests were niche and wouldn't really be accepted in the mainstream forums those were mostly positive spaces you know and there wasn't this like policing of each other's like interpretations or approaches to the story Mm. in the way we perhaps find now and yeah i just find that to be a really interesting difference in terms of fandom like of the 2020s versus fandom of the late 90s and early 2000s yeah it reminds me of the Raylo sky forum being set up after that topic was banned from the force.net yeah like it is such an interesting time i almost feel like back with the jelly council forum like people like at the time of the prequels people like were perhaps more attuned and they just knew that certain subjects were taboo you know ahead of time so they knew to create their own spaces Whereas I feel like with Raylo and like in 2015 and 2016, 
I feel like perhaps we were all a bit more naive about the whole thing and we thought, oh yeah, it's just an interpretation of the story. What's the harm in discussing that on the biggest <laughs> Star Wars forum on the internet? And there obviously were problems. <laughs> I think because a lot of us thought that it was obvious, it would just be kind of a given. Like even if you didn't like it, you'd accept that it was there. But yeah. little did we know. Exactly. And I, I think that's another important difference to point out, isn't it? The fact that I think a big part of why our read of The Force Awakens and the Rey and Kylo stuff a big part of why we were met with such hostility on places like Jedi Council Forum was because we weren't just asserting the fact that we liked that dynamic and that relationship. We were asserting the fact that we thought this relationship was going to be fundamental to the sequels as a whole, mm. you know, and it was going to go a certain way. Like, again, even if not necessarily endgame romantic, you know, they were going to be this really fundamental dynamic. And that really went against a lot of other users' read of the film. And that resulted in this really, really bitter back and forth, Yeah, I think. And yeah, it really did necessitate us creating our own spaces in the end, which I think mostly worked out well. I think we've carved out some pretty cool spaces. Um, but yeah, that's a whole other discussion. So there's been lots of online spaces for Roilos over the years. I guess that is quite different from the Darth Maul thing, because that's not an assertion like as you say about what's going to happen with the story because it seemed kind of one and done at the end of the phantom menace people didn't know that he'd return at some point so it was just kind of a fan base built around that specific character in that specific film and they could keep for themselves exactly yeah so i think they like peacefully coexisted so to speak like although many in the former were, were probably completely unaware of the darth maul estrogen brigade <laughs> I definitely agree about Qui-Gon being a huge stoner, though. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I think that's so true. I, like, he has that vibe where, you know, like, if you were to do a real-world AU, I think the perfect AU would be that when he was, like, a teenager slash early 20s, he was a hippie in the 60s, you know, the summer of love and everything. Yeah. And most people, like, grew out of it and became, like, conventional and, like, led normal, boring, like, everyday lives. But some people, like, just really, like, stayed embedded in that lifestyle. Yeah, and everyone's like, you could be on the council if you got your act together (laughs) and just conformed (laughs) a bit. (laughs) It's like, no, dude, I'm cool. (laughs) Yeah, so I just wanted to, like, branch off a bit from that point about all these subgroups and this idea of fans of different aspects of the Phantom Menace like carving out their own spaces on the internet um, because I just love that and I again see lots of parallels for our own experience um, so yeah to tie it back to Padme one of the my f- absolute favourite parts of my research was finding this huge like broad fandom space dedicated, dedicated to Padme and her handmaidens like there just seems to have been this huge wealth of fascination with them and a real hub for this activity is a website called the Royal Handmaiden Society which is still online so yeah I feel it's important to mention that wherever it's the case because sadly a lot of these sites have been lost to time which is a real tragedy I think for like fandom history Um, and yeah I just wanted to read out a explanation essentially of how this fandom for Padme and her handmaidens came to be so it's a bit on the longer side but I feel it's really interesting so could you read it out Kirsty I've just highlighted the explanation of this fandom from the Royal Handmaiden Society Mm -hmm. the Royal Handmaiden Society had its genesis in the Jedi Council forums 
preeminent Star Wars fan site in the latter part of 1999. Of course, then was the era of discussing, debating, defending or debunking the newly released episode one, The Phantom Menace. Such was taking place at JediCouncil.net in the then titled prequels spoilers allowed forum the course of discussion in these threads inevitably turned to the quintessential query that would create the rhs they want to know more about those five female human characters centered around natalie portman's queen padme amidala sabe rabe yete sache and yane <laughs> they had an allure to them they were mysterious and tacit exquisitely elegant yet demonstratively powerful and capable they presented an intrigue comparable to the bounty hunters of the Empire Strikes Back. Who were they? What was their origin and what will be their fate? What's the deal with the E in their names and how do you thus pronounce them? And in real life, who are the equally intriguing actresses that portray them? Unlike Empire's bounty hunters though, the five royal handmaidens of the Phantom Menace and the actresses that portrayed them also carried the extra dimension of being beautiful young women. It is no big admission then that this extra dimension prompted many a post from earnest, swooning fanboys. As the threads progress along with the knowledge base about Phantom Menace, the inquest into the Royal Handmaiden's characters moved beyond just the scope of beguiled fanboys to enroll costume, wardrobe enthusiasts, name explicators, and those who are just fans of non-damsel in distress female characterization. The gender balance began to shift in favor of the fangirls. I, I will also point out that fangirls also like the way that the handmaidens look, speaking from experience. Yep, 100%. <laughs> As a young queer woman, like, come on, that was yeah. a huge appeal of the Phantom Menace. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And just quickly to add that as a point, a lot of the language used in these posts from this time is obviously very gender binary, you know, because of course, yeah. that's just how people wrote on the internet back then, you know. But um, yeah, absolutely, we don't want to deny the fact that like the attraction of those characters is much more broad than might be suggested here. But yeah, please do continue. Yeah, there's, and just getting, I'm completely sidetracked now, but there's just an inherent queerness i feel like in you know the way that they do their elaborate hair and and makeup and everything that is definitely going to attract people beyond straight young boys in fandom so yeah no i agree anyway but in addition to these areas of interest it was probably the challenge of good old-fashioned detective work that buoyed the rhs which handmaiden is in what scene who's underneath that hood and most importantly what is the deal with the decoy queen plot element when it is when is it in effect and are you sure that's not natalie portman playing both parts yes we're sure and on top of that was a shared sense of at least rooting for the underdog and at most writing cosmic injustice amidst the hype following the phantom menace the handmaidens strong human characters fighting on the side of good were not getting the credit they deserved from fans at large and official sources alike Relatively, a certain single shot, inactive, bold female bounty hunter had attracted all sorts of attention for doing nothing of any importance whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, isn't that marvellous, though? I find that so fascinating. You know, it's basically a justification of itself. You know, it's explaining this is why we exist. This is the sequence of events that led to the creation of this royal handmaiden society. And this is why we care about and love these characters so much. And yeah, so yeah. I was really pleased when I found this because this sort of rationale, I guess, is very, very hard to find. You know, you can find a million threads where it's like, which one's Amadala in this scene? <laughs> you know, like on news groups and stuff, but they're not 
very like introspective you know that's not the point of those sorts of threads is a very literal question like i want to know which character is which Mm. whereas this explains the more personal dimension to the fandom that surrounded this group of characters and yeah i think it's really awesome yeah i i just i i agree that the handmaidens are pretty fascinating it's like you would want to know how did they conduct their lives off screen as well like did these women all live together how well do they know each other personally? Are they like, uh, how interconnected are their lives with their families? Like, do they leave their families behind and go and live with the queen in her service? Like, what's the story? Yeah. And I think it's also a good reminder of how revolutionary, in a way, like just that concept was, you know, of having like a young female ruler and then surrounded and supported by this group of young women you know, Mm. who, like, perform all these, like, different functions to help her and support her. Yeah. Like, so if you think about, like, other female protagonists in sci-fi and fantasy up to that point, they're almost exclusively love interests or they're, like, a lone badass. You know, they certainly don't have, like, female friends. They definitely don't have, like, a big female friendship group. (laughs) You know, it just doesn't happen. And, yeah, I think that in itself you know the newness of this whole concept was a really attractive and special factor in what caused this fascination mm-hmm. yeah definitely and even going into attack of the clones you still have that element as um she's senator you know there's still like the decoy aspect to it with her murder plot and everything yep no 100 percent. and these sites usually encompass all three films and acknowledge the handmaidens from attack and revenge as well which is nice to see it's not just like there was this one big fan site for the for padme and the handmaidens it wasn't just a question of there being the royal handmaiden society there was like a bunch of like sub sites that were associated with it like some of these were just dedicated to specific handmaidens the actors that played certain handmaidens others were more like shipping oriented which we'll get into I personally just had to give a shout out to Elusive Yane, which I just love. It's still online. So go and check out Elusive Yane. Like give it like all the support and love you can. Um, and we also get that amazing thing, the rationale again. So I'll read it out this time. So late in August 1999, I decided to de-lurk and register at the Jedi Council at the Force.net. I needed a username. I noticed a few posters had handmaiden-inspired names, but no Yane's were in sight. Huzzah! I'd found my username. Yane was already used, so after much cursing, I tacked on of Naboo, and Yane of Naboo was born. My choice of username was rather random. I wasn't a handmaiden admirer at the time, I just needed a username, and that's what I ended up with. Pretty soon, however, I began to wonder about this Yane person. So desirous of some information, I began to post to R.O.'s what handmaiden name do you like best, Fred? That would be the Fred that spawned the Royal Handmaiden Society. Quickly enough, I got wrapped up in handmaiden analysis, looking for pictures, trying to find info on actresses, to which there seemed to be no info for, wondering who was in what scene with who. I particularly became caught up in the mystery of the elusive Yane. <laughs> it's pretty amazing how styles can inspire such obsession over minute detail. And yeah, again, I think that's a, crush, a question of fandom being created from absence and from speculation and mystery. And yeah, it's awesome. So kudos to that person. Yeah, I'm guessing a lot of this was kind of built around cosplay as well. Yeah. No, definitely, that can't be underestimated. And like that costuming website I sent you a link to, 
I think it was about the absence of information and also just the allure of the aesthetic. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yep, and then there were, of course, a bunch of ships surrounding the handmaidens as well. Um, so perhaps the main one, like handmaiden adjacent, was um, Sabe with Obi-Wan. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because obviously those characters have literally zero interaction, but ships have been built on less. There are ships about characters who aren't even in the same like canon, you know, it's fine. Whatever makes people happy, it's all good. Um, so yeah, I found an interesting meta I guess is what you'd call it explaining why people were shipping like Sabe and Obi-Wan um so yeah this is from about 2005 so a little bit after The Phantom Menace but obviously people were shipping this as soon as The Phantom Menace came out so it's relevant to that time uh, could you read out what I've highlighted Kirsty? Duty and responsibility these two words, which can be the greatest hindrance to a realistic relationship of Obi-Wan and Sabe. They are dedicated to causes they believe are greater than themselves, and they are greatly similar in that aspect. However, perhaps the things that make Sabe Obi-Wan unlikely are also the things that make the idea of the relationship attractive and even plausible. I'm convinced. <laughs> Same, right? <laughs> like, it is very convincing. And yeah, like I think when it's put like that, you do totally see it. You know, it's like most ships, there is like thought put into it you know it's not completely arbitrary people like see a kinship between these characters for a reason and yeah especially i like it that they basically take sabe who is a character who's so thin you know on the page you know she barely has any lines her most important role is like impersonating padme essentially yeah. to protect but by her. 2005 kira was a big name so oh, that yeah. was probably a big part of it too a hundred percent yeah yeah and usually you find looking on these sorts of like sabe websites they're linked to all manner of kira knightley fan sites <laughs> because i think pirates of the caribbean had obviously really made her a big star so yeah that brought renewed attention back to sabe do you remember there was a pretty recent interview with kira where she thought that she'd played padme <laughs> oh really <laughs> i hadn't seen that so she was funny. like but i was the queen wasn't i <laughs> so don't feel too bad about being confused about that subplot because she was too <laughs> and yeah it does make me wonder what the discussions were with george on the set you know like i assume he just explained very little to these people <laughs> yeah maybe actually maybe to get like the best performance he told her that she was playing the queen so yeah. that she thought she was playing the queen and she played the queen <laughs> Yeah, that'd make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Um, okay, so unfortunately it's time to move from a really fun aspect of Phantom Menace fandom to a less fun, like, well, it was fun in lots of ways, but there was also like a nasty side to it, um, dimension of Phantom Menace fandom, which is slash shipping. Um, so this was mentioned in one of the emails we got from Cree um, and she said I do unfortunately remember Slash being banned which made me uncomfortable as a closeted trans and queer person navigating the forum yeah no no you're fine yeah so this was on Jedi Council forums and incredibly um, like I wasn't like fully up to speed on the Slash ban I think I had heard of it before you know but I hadn't really like looked into like the exactitudes of it 
And um, what I did find is apparently it was only officially revoked, this like no slash policy in 2015. Are you serious? I Like, I'm pretty sure that's what I read, yes. Oh my God. So they just had official homophobia as their policy until 2015. I know, right? It's pretty Ugh. staggering. You know what? If I'd have known that, I wouldn't have even bothered starting using it at that time. Yeah. That was just, that was like, the year of the first force awakens oh my god i know I it's staggeringly recent i i was really shocked as well it's just a really like grim part of that forum's history which is a shame because obviously it's the biggest stars forum on the internet so basically i asked Cree for more information about the situation with the ban on slash so she directed me towards a thread where basically the question what is slash had been asked and the moderator replied with this Basically, slash is a term that describes the association or relationship between two individuals of the same gender. As far as I know, this ranges from physical contact to intimacy. You probably can't find it in the dictionary because it's used only in fanfiction, to my knowledge. At the moment, slash is banned from fanfiction posted here, and, moreover, the Jedi Council forums. There are sites which permit it, fanfiction.net used to, but eventually restricted its posting. But those are limited to mature-aged persons. This thread's from 2002, so just to give context, and the most striking thing about it to me is it really reflected like a very, very different understanding of what Slash is from what we understand it to be. Because my understanding of Slash is just, it's fan fiction about a same-sex couple. You know, that's literally the definition <laughs> to the best of my understanding. But I think the implicit understanding conveyed by like a lot of the posts in this thread and on the forum more generally is this understanding that is explicit fan fiction so i mean that's a classic homophobic argument against any kind of same-sex romantic expression right yeah just exactly just the fact yep. that gay people exist apparently can be considered not appropriate information for children so yeah. yeah, I can totally see that as an argument, unfortunately. Oh, this is making me angry, sorry. Yeah, no, it made me angry reading it, to be honest. And it's like, gosh, this is 19 years old, but yeah, it still infuriates me. Yeah, um, I think the 2015 date shocked me. Unfortunately, this isn't too surprising. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, I did actually find a reply in that same thread from a user who like, demonstrated a significantly more like open-minded you know and in what i would consider to be much more intelligent perspective on the whole thing they said um slash as defined by most groups who accept slash in fan fiction is really just a romantic relationship as opposed to platonic between two people of the same gender i've seen g-rated fics that are considered slash with no more than a kiss on the cheek the word originated from the slash between the two names or two letters of the names of the characters being slashed family-oriented depends on how you define the term this is in response to someone saying all all slash was automatically not family-oriented which yeah is obviously maddening granted i certainly wouldn't show my theoretical children something explicit but maybe i'm liberal in my thinking for believing that a movie in which two guys like each other is no less worthy than a movie in which a heterosexual couple is portrayed hopefully i haven't offended too many people with this dissertation well, I'm sure you did offend people, but thank you for posting that, user from 2002. Yeah. Even though you find really, really ugly attitudes in a lot of these old forum posts, they did want to take the time to also acknowledge that there were people like opposing them 
basically, you know, and putting out a different viewpoint. So I think that's also important. Um, but yeah, it's just staggering that that was the status quo for so long. One of our email correspondents went into much more detail about the interaction between like mainstream fandom and slash or shipping fandom. Hmm. And that's Auronix. Could you read out their thoughts, please, Kirsty? I was the teenage fanfic writer when teenage fanfic writers were not a thing. This was pre-internet, writing meta and fanfic for printed zines. Like a lot of fans, I started in Star Trek because it was one of the only fandoms where you could more or less operate openly. A lot of media producers got pissed at the very idea of fanfic, so it was more or less an open secret. As far as Star Wars, well, it had a reputation among fanfic writers. Keep that shit PG or hide it under a pseudonym you use for nothing else because LucasArts would flip their shit and sue you into the poorhouse. Most of the dudes did not know about fanfic and really didn't want to know. It was one of those keep it on your side of the fence and please don't show me that stuff sort of deals that happened a lot in fandom. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, fanfic wasn't on big pan fandom archives. Fanfiction.net was still new and AO3 wasn't a thing. Instead, you had fandom-specific web rings and archives, the immediate successor to the print zines of old. Now, there are a lot of issues with these web rings. Remember what I said about the nerves of steel if you did Star Wars Slash? No one was stupid enough to poke the rancor with a stick on places like Force.net where we knew the lawyers were reading. But if you made your own site, little easier flying that under the radar. Still wasn't perfect, LucasArts sent out a bunch of cease and desist orders to the web rings, leading to some really weird issues where you'd better download and print your faves because they might vanish overnight. I think one Qui-Gon Obi-Wan slash archive bounced from a US ISP, GeoCities, to a Brazilian ISP, to a Swedish ISP to try and stay ahead of the lawyers. Now, if you wanted the really crazy stuff, private mailing lists or invite-only archives were the way to go. Bit of a speakeasy atmosphere. You had to know someone who knew someone and get the password, that sort of thing. Shipping was more a not-my-circus, not-my-monkeys. I didn't write shipping fic. I'd find it mixed in with stuff that was more my speed, platonic friendships, or read a bit if someone had a good recommendation. It was a big surprise when Bioware went hold my beer and completely trashed the LucasArts gay ban by sneaking Jahani past the censors. Then Karen Travis went my turn and gave a score on a medrit. Between that and the fact that trying to censor slash sites was like playing whack-a-mole, LucasArts threw up their hands and let the gay stay. So I wonder if the Force.net's decision to only overturn the slash ban in 2015 was because they knew that LucasArts were so... and Lucasfilm were so heavy about it. Not that that excuses it, because it's still... If you're banning Slash, but not any other kind of fanfic, that is homophobic. Yeah, no, 100%. I feel like I would need to look into it more, you know, so you obviously don't want to speak to a situation I haven't fully researched. But I, I feel it's at least safe to say that the Slash ban, like in its initial form, was influenced by the Lucasfilm policy on Slash, you know, which was obviously extremely hostile, especially around the time of the original trilogy and right through up to those early days of the prequels. You know, it was like a zero tolerance approach to Slash, especially explicit Slash. Um, And yeah, I feel like Jedi Council forums, because it did sometimes have a kind of quasi-official status relative to Lucasfilm, you know, people who worked for Lucasfilm would post there, and it was the most important Star Wars website online, I believe, you know, pretty much since its creation. So I think those were all important factors influencing the ban. 
And yeah, I guess they must have seen, you know, the shift in Lucasfilm, you know, with the games like changing tune, you know, and starting to include more queer characters and eventually Lucasfilm itself like opening up a bit more around the time of the sequel trilogy as well as just like society generally to be honest becoming more accepting and tolerant and obviously it's not to say we're perfect now you know we're definitely not but comparing 2000 to 2015 there were massive societal changes in terms of perceptions and acceptance. I guess I'm just curious where the boundaries are between having an issue with fan fiction in general because that's our intellectual property and Mm. oh it's okay if you play with these characters as long as you're doing it in a way that we're okay with no i agree i think that's the real question isn't it where was that boundary line that i think their official stance in the time of the original trilogy was that they were all right with fan fiction as long as it was like family friendly and it wasn't being produced for profit essentially it depends what family friendly means exactly like like what we were talking about earlier like something explicit between han and leia is fine but not luke and han yeah i think that's exactly it and especially because i really do think there was this complete equation of same-sex couples with you know like explicit scary content at the time you know which is obviously total bullshit but i do think there was that like perception and yeah thankfully that's mostly died off now not completely but it's better than it was and yeah i i think this sort of shit with like lawyers being brought in and literally hounding down archives of slash fan fiction i think that's the sort of stories that really need to be remembered in fandom history because those sorts of warnings that people would put at the starts of their stories about please don't sue me I know that's like a joke now, but it was there for a very real and serious reason because at a certain point in fandom history, there was the genuine risk that lawyers would sue you for publishing fan fiction, especially slash fan fiction and especially, especially explicit slash fan fiction. So, yeah, yeah. you do see much younger fans making fun of that stuff these days, but I maybe just completely unaware of the fact that this actually was (laughs) risky for people. If at least, you know, they were trackable or they were using their real names in any way. Yeah. As Ulronix points out in that email, there were these, like, big, like, individual archives of slash fanfiction. So the most important is probably Master and Apprentice, which is still online. And that's a huge archive of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan fanfiction. Um, because that was definitely the, like, big ship to arise from the Phantom Menace, essentially. So I didn't know about master and apprentice and now i really want to know if master and apprentice by claudia gray is a nod to that slash archive <laughs> i'd really like to think so yeah the same right like i i feel like that was a big site you know it was definitely the most prominent like slash archive for like qui-gon and obi-wan content at that time so i feel like she'd be aware of it you know claudia is obviously like a big nerd as well so yeah I, i'm gonna choose to believe that's a nod Basically, that's my official stance. And it's Lucasfilm saying sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'd like to see like an actual, like firmly stated, strongly Part worded of me policy. also thinks that it's less of like a moral sea change and more just like they give up because as she says, it is playing whack-a-mole. They can keep mm. doing it, but more will just pop up. You can't control fandom, you know? Yeah. People are going to have fun with the characters and world that you create. So you may as well embrace it. Yeah, I I do think that those early attempts at 
you know, like trying to control and please fandom. They were very much limited to the late 90s, early 2000s because the internet was so new and people didn't fully grasp what they were dealing with, you know, and the vastness of that space, you know, and what was possible. And yeah, they were just fighting a losing battle, basically. It's literally impossible. And yeah, there was one email we got from someone called Miles, which is a really interesting account of how like that sort of attitude you know the hostility towards slash and fan fiction more generally how that bled over sometimes into real world interactions it's actually quite upsetting so um yeah just warn people sit miles now there is a particular place in the novel of the phantom menace in which obi-wan recognizes anakin because of the way his behind looks I was making a joke about this particular part of the book to a couple of friends and a stranger decided to interject himself into the conversation. He raved about how people like myself ruin everything we touch and how you, Slur, did the same thing to Star Trek. He went on to reveal that he had not even read the book and had no clue what I was even referencing and closed his statements by telling me he would kill me if I kept shipping two men in a few more or less savoury words. Additionally, my partner and I cosplayed as Obi-Wan and Anakin to a convention years ago. We took a picture recreating the forehead touch between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon as a symbolism of Obi-Wan losing both his teacher and his student. It wasn't even meant to be romantic or shippy, yet I had several toxic male fans using slurs and threats in the comments, even after showing them the screenshots from Phantom Menace where Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon do the same thing. I can't really expect much from this fandom though. It's always been all-out nerd war for who is right and who is wrong. My father and his friend came to blows arguing over which man Leia would end up with, and my dad still brags to this day that he won that pissing contest. Toxicity in the Star Wars fandom has always existed, and anyone who says it hasn't always been a problem probably thinks that because they made it a problem for others. Yeah, it's just frightening, to be honest, that someone would be so like hostile and like even threaten violence towards people because of... like perceived I don't even know it doesn't like make sense yeah, to me it's almost incomprehensible you know but gosh it's just so bloody ugly yeah thank you for sending that Miles I think you make such a great point at the end there about how all of these people who think that Star Wars fandom was wonderful sunshine and rainbows before maybe before the sequel trilogy era or before Disney era or whatever arbitrary thing that they use to define it now it's like oh it was great then and now it's not it's like racism and homophobia and bigotry in all these forms has always existed so that's going to bleed over into fandom and if you didn't experience it well lucky you but lots of people did so yeah and just like we need to close this episode out shortly unfortunately because time is running out and essentially we'll need to pick up with a discussion of the attack of the clones and french of the sith stuff separately we always do this we plan these huge topics and then we're like okay we're gonna have to stretch this out over a month (laughs) it's true it's so true Yeah, at least it will give me time to do more and better notes on the subsequent films. But yeah, I just need to make sure not to go too far so we don't have this problem again. <laughs> yeah, so the final like p- points that I wanted to end on was I found a really interesting thread on the Jedi Council forum, again, complaining about the feminization of Stars in The Phantom Menace. And yeah, I thought this thread was pretty like fascinating basically um i've included the original post and i've also included a response to that original post where the person disagrees with him basically because the balance 
yeah to balance and also just to demonstrate that there were lots of like gross toxic people on Jedi Council Forum in the late 90s and early 2000s but there were some more like sensible people appealing to reason so that's always good to see so yeah the original post I haven't seen this issue brought up except in a few isolated posts so I thought it deserved its very own topic Honestly, I hate films that portray women in traditionally male roles. Now, I don't mean roles where a woman is strong-willed, like Princess Leia, but roles like female fighter pilots, <gasps> female soldiers, and female bounty hunters. I think Leia's character was great, and it rang real for me, whereas seeing a female bounty hunter was the height of absurdity. How many female bounty hunters have you ever seen in real life? Come on, that's just ridiculous. I think it's a huge mistake for George Lucas to be slowly feminising the saga as he has been doing. It just seems that he's trying to fulfil some type of politically correct agenda and he's using Star Wars to accomplish this task. Gosh. I know. Like, honestly, I expect this person's making YouTube videos right now about how Rey is a Mary Sue and is, like, destroying the saga. It's... Wow. Well, hopefully they're not. Hopefully they grew up and realised they were being silly. But I also really hope that. But it's the same mentality. Yeah, I I would say fandom has evolved. Like you'd hope that most people don't feel this way these days. But on the other hand, it's become more intense because there's like a, a financial incentive to be this way. Unfortunately, at this point, right? It's been monetized. Yeah. So, uh, 100%. Yeah. It's- it's, it's also been taken issue. up as a political cause, which, yeah, rewriting Ripley, I've done a great series on, so go and listen to yeah. them. Yeah, obviously they go into it in much more detail and they've done far more research than I have on this point, but I just feel like it's, it is part of what we were talking about earlier in terms of like this nerd culture becoming more mainstream and so these these franchises and references have become more important to some people's like personal identities so they take them up as causes in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have done so in the past it's just ugh, it's exhausting yeah but yeah just quickly um because obviously i know we need to wrap up soon could you read out the dissenting response kirsty so i want to end with a ray of hope so to speak <laughs> who honestly cares whether men fit traditional male stereotypes or if women fit traditional female stereotypes We're talking about simple anatomical differences here. The ideas of male and female are mostly conceptualizations, powerfully influenced by history, tradition, and social structures that have nothing to do with the physiological, neurochemical differences that supposedly define them. To insist that women be women and men be men is to simply insist that we continue to reduce human beings to the shallow, one-dimensional caricatures that certain segments of Western society have developed through history. As far as I can tell, Star Wars is neither male nor female, but human, What's wrong with that? Indeed. Yeah. I loved that post, honestly. I was like, thank you, person on the internet from 20 years ago. I'm honestly so happy you said that. (laughs) Because, yeah, that just gets to the heart of it, doesn't it? You know, it's like there's just this bizarre, like, insistence that Star Wars is, like, an emblem of all these, like, retrograde values, you know? And it's all about, like, men being men, like, women Bizarre. being women. And Luke was never particularly macho. <laughs> I know, right? And, like, I don't know how I ended up watching this, but I ended up watching one of those, like, Founder Menace style videos recently. And they were talking about the banner that Star Wars have just put out for May the 4th. And there's, like, a certain illustration of Luke on it. And it's Luke from the original Star Wars, you know, looking wide-eyed and into the distance. 
And they were like going on a mini rant about how feminine Luke looked and how it was clearly part of the sinister Lucasfilm plot to like destroy Luke's legacy, you know, by supposedly feminizing him. And I'm like, God, just the insecurity radiating from this person. It's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it just makes me really sad because it's obviously not about Star Wars. People have things that they need to, to work through. Yeah. But yeah, we're going to have to wind this up now, sadly. Um, but I do love that post, so I'm happy we could at least end on a positive note with someone Gender raising... is a social construct. Fuck off. Zam is a changeling, which makes it even more ludicrous. <laughs> Not even human. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, I, I don't see any bounty hunters in real life. <laughs> Male or female. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. It's just so stupid. But yeah, I think that's the best response you can give like posts like that. You can just laugh at them, to be honest. It's just so transparently ludicrous. Yeah, and also just to think that it's important enough to deserve its own topic to then go on, I hate this and I hate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, the, the internet's done many wonderful things for the human species, but it's also done terrible things like people thinking their like shitty opinions deserve to be like <laughs> broadcast to everyone and uh. <laughs> yep so we will be back we will continue this discussion because we've really only covered the phantom menace aspect <laughs> of the equation here and there's a lot still to discuss <laughs> um but yeah i just quickly want to say a massive thank you to everyone who sent in those emails they were absolutely invaluable to us and honestly this episode really wouldn't have like held together without people's memories of that time so thank you so much to everyone who sent those in um and obviously Kirsty and i we're just reflecting on something we didn't have personal experience of so if we've said anything that you feel like misrepresents something or like you want to like correct some sort of factual inaccuracy please do email us at scavengershoard at gmail.com because we'd genuinely like to hear from you with regards to that so we can like put the record straight next time yeah and I hope, I hope it's clear that we are just kind of reacting to it like as ourselves and we do that with the sequel trilogy era too which obviously we've experienced personally we're just kind of talking about our own experiences we know other people's could be completely different and that's totally valid too we're not trying to dictate it for anyone exactly yeah and as is hopefully evident by the fact that this episode has like gone about two hours and it's barely scratched the surface. We know how limited this discussion is. And we know there's so much more we could talk about. Stating the obvious, but it is pretty remarkable to me at that time that, as you said, like that was just kind of when the internet was starting to be used for fandom purposes, but there was so much happening. It was such a huge community already. Yeah, it really took off like a rocket, I think, in like that late 90s period. It's a very interesting time to research. Um, okay, cool. So we'll close it out now. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!